Uh, we are in the book of Habakkuk, and this week we're right at what I believe is the most important, or maybe not most important, but the hinge pin verse of Habakkuk. And it's, it's one of those verses that when you read it, you kind of have some idea about what it means, but there's some deciphering that we have to do uh, to, to get through what we've created in the church and what I call Christianese. And so it's, it's kind of like this whole idea that we hear the word, we see the word, but we don't really have the word defined in us. We don't really understand what it looks like. We may not even have a, a clear picture of what God's talking about when he, when he says these things to us through his word. And so this morning, we're going to be looking just at chapter 2, verse 4. And this is one of those really great verses. If you're going to memorize verses, or if you do memorize verses, mark this one down as one you want to memorize. And here's what it says. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. So here's what we've got going on this morning. We're separating out two kinds of people. We've got two different people that God's um, laid out here for us for us to see. We've got um, the, the one who is a puffed up man who is not righteous. And so what is a, you know... Um, Puffed up guy, what does he look like? Well, I'm going to show you. And remember, I failed art class. Just If you're new with this, just so you know, I have failed art class um, a couple of times, I think. So anyway, this is a puffed up guy, right? Oh, wait a minute. Got to make him puffed up. Big muscles. Okay. That's a puffed up guy. He's got a big head. Why does he have a big head? Because spiritually speaking, he thinks he's got it all together. He thinks that he's more superior than most people around him. He's conceited. He becomes his own savior. He's his own God. He doesn't need anybody else to help him. He, most of all, he doesn't need God. He doesn't even need to come under the mighty hand of God. He can just do stuff his own way because he's puffed up in all that he does. He's a self-righteous, self-made man. And that's what's going on in this text. This is the guy that we see. Now listen, a lot of us are probably thinking right now, I'd go like, I know that guy. Well, Jesus isn't talking about that guy to you. He's talking to you about you. This could be you. We'll find out later on if this is you. I know some of you are going like, you're not being very nice. Have I ever been really nice? I mean, I've never been accused of being a nice guy. So if you're new here, get used to it, okay? And, and so we have on the, the other part of this, we have... The, the, the thing that's going on. And we're going to get that to that in a minute. But one of the greatest examples that we can give of the, the puffed up guy is found in the New Testament. And Jesus had to deal with these guys all the time. They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. And, and if you're not in the Bible a whole lot and you don't really know who those guys are, those guys are the religious leaders of the day. I mean, they're the ones that had the power in the country. They're the ones that said, this is what's going to happen, and that's what happened. It wasn't, 
It wasn't the political leaders that carried the power in the day when Jesus was around. It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and these guys were puffed up, and they thought that they knew more than anybody else. They thought they walked closer to God than anybody else. And so what they would do is when Jesus came along, they would throw out these questions trying to, to trap Jesus, trying to get Jesus busted, to make him look bad, to, to get people to hate Jesus. And so they'd bring questions to him, and so they would think that the questions that they have are these really good questions. GQ. Now, that's not what you think it is. It's good questions. All right? And so they'd bring the good questions to Jesus, and they'd think that they had him trapped. Like, one of the questions that they threw at him one time was they said to Jesus, they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Now, because they're, they've conspired over here together, and they've been talking, and then they came over to Jesus going like, we got the question, it's going to bust your chops, and no matter how you answer it, you are going to be in a heap of trouble. Because if Jesus says, yeah, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then all of the Jews are going to riot, and he's going to have a, a crowd on his hand that wants to deal with him and, and kill him. And so they're going like, if he says yes, where he's in trouble, and but... If he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar because we're Jews, then they would call over the centurions and say, this guy's evading taxes. He's a tax evader, and you need to arrest him. And so they think that they've got Jesus trapped in, in this little question. But the, but the thing that Jesus does is, is that when he answers a question, he, he completely diffuses the question that they're answering. Do you know how he answered that question? He said, give me a coin. They gave a coin. He says, whose, name, whose picture is that? And they said, that's Caesar's. Then he said, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. And they're like, God dang it. He got us again. And then they go back over in the corner, and they're having another little huddle, and they're going like, hey, let's come up with another really great, great question. Let's see if we can trap him on, let's say, adultery, because we caught this woman in adultery. Let's bring that question and ask if, you know, she should be punished the way that the Old Testament says she should be punished. And so they bring these questions, these great questions, and they bring them to Jesus, and, and they're always asking them, and Jesus always has this way of diffusing the questions. And so they bring the good question, and here's what Jesus does to that good question. He does that every single time. Now here, this is a little side thing. This is free for you this morning. Just in case you didn't know it, you can't trick God. Okay? I'm just telling you, you cannot trick God. Here's, here's what Jesus does. All the time that they bring a question to him, these good questions, trying to trap him, trying to trick him, he would dismantle them. He would almost strip them bare, not physically, but he would make them to look silly and not doing it to be mean, but doing it to prove to them that he's the son of God. And guess what? They never got that. They never went like, hey, maybe he is who he says he is. They just kept on doing the things they're doing. So the puffed up, conceited nature of religion is where all of a sudden you don't need God anymore. You just don't need God. What you need, though, is you use God's language. You can use God's stuff. You can use his doctrines. You can use his theologies, but you don't need him. So when you see that that puffed up righteousness that Habakkuk is talking about in this book, it starts in the religious realm, quite honest with you. The, the problem, the issue that we have going on in the religious realm of our world is that we come across with all these religious ideas and religiosity and we try to press those things on an unreligious world. People who don't love Jesus, we bring it to bear upon their lives and they're going like, why are you beating me with this stuff? 
Why is God this mean? Why are you so mean? And they bring all this stuff. And that's the problem that we have. The big deal that we need to do is we need to love him like Jesus did. When the woman who was caught in adultery, Jesus dealt with her in a very loving and kind way. When Jesus met the woman at the well, he didn't beat her up about all of her failed relationships and her divorces. He loved her and she worshipped him. You see, that's what, that's what we're being called to. But if you're the, the religious puffed up guy, you don't draw people to God. You try to draw people to yourself. You puff up your own sight. You make your own will, your own desires, the, the thing that is planted there. And so that's the picture that Habakkuk is giving to us this morning. The second picture is that the righteous live by faith. And I want to talk about this just for a little bit because the word righteous is a weighty word. That's the one that, when you take a look in the New Testament and you look at all the things that Jesus did and how God lived through Christ and Christ demonstrated his love to us, we see the righteousness of not just Jesus, but the triune God at work in Jesus. But then if you turn around and you take a look at the Old Testament, you, go, you know that for someone to live fully, a righteous life is impossible. Nobody can fulfill the law perfectly. There's this, this righteousness that we try to have, but we don't get it. We've got this thing going on, and it's totally impossible for man to live in the righteousness. And that's why they had the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, what they would have is they would bring in all these goats, these bulls, these little lambs on the Day of Atonement, and they would sacrifice them. And so what what is being told to us by Habakkuk is we've got this other guy over here. The righteous guy. And so what does he look like? He looks like he's a mess. Somebody didn't draw him very well. Totally content. And guess what this righteous guy does? He lives by faith. So as we, as we think about through the Old Testament and that they've got this, this system, the sacrificial system set up, the reason they had that sacrificial system set up was so that people would have a way to experience righteousness in some form in some manner. And what we do know about the Old Testament is that it was just a shadow of what was going to happen when Jesus Christ came to earth and demonstrated to us what a perfect life, the, a righteous life looked like. And so we have all of that that takes place for us because what happens is Christ came and he's going to be our righteousness. That's what it means. You and I are righteous only because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's not because of anything you've done. And this is where we need to see the weight of what's actually going on in the text. That those who have a right standing before God, those who are seen by God as being holy, blameless, and spotless, are those who live in a way that is evident of their righteousness. The way that a righteous person lives is by faith. That's how they live, by faith. So the question comes to you this morning, how are you living your life? So, 
we got to be careful with that word faith because we can get all Christianese on that word. We make up all kinds of stuff about Christianese. We kind of go like, yeah, you know what? I've got faith. I trust in faith. Faith is a good thing, you know. Faith is awesome. But I want to spend the rest of our time today kind of unpacking what faith is and where it comes from and how do you actually exercise faith in your life and how does it work itself out as we live in this world. And then I want to come back to what Habakkuk has said and kind of see what kind of a man or woman you are, what kind of a a person you are, whether you're the puffed up, self-righteous person conceited who is under their own kind of righteousness, or whether you're the righteous person who is living by faith. So by our human nature, we are all creatures of faith. You all demonstrated a certain measure of faith this morning when you came here, and I'm going to give you two examples of that. So um, the first thing that everybody did this morning was you got in your your car, and I remember, art's not my thing. Mm -hmm. So you got in your car this morning, and by an act of faith, you started your car up, you drove out of the driveway with the the expectation that your brakes were going to work on the way to church this morning. You got in, You probably didn't think anything about it. You started the motor. You drove to church. When you came to the stop sign or the stoplight, you hit your brakes. The car stopped, and you continued on. And I didn't hear that anybody was in a crash or an accident this morning. So you all demonstrated a step of faith this morning by driving your car and just getting in and going because you trusted that your car was going to stop when you needed it to stop. The other, the second thing that you did by demonstrating faith this morning is that you sat in the chair that you're in. Now, listen, I was really paying attention when I came in, and everybody just pulled up their chair and they sat in it. You demonstrated faith in saying, I trust that this chair is going to hold me up. I'm going to sit in it, and I trust it's been put together right, and it's going to hold me up. And so we both, you have both these things where you've demonstrated this act of faith. And and the reality is we really can't function healthily through life without demonstrating faith in in our everyday thing. Now, here's the thing. If you are a Christ follower, if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, you've only had to demonstrate one thing about faith. It's one thing. You believe, faith is that you believe that God has revealed himself in Jesus through Scripture. That's your faith. Now, if you were to take the most staunch atheist and look at their life, they, they live with, I think they, they demonstrate like faith way more than Christ followers do. Because even though they would say they don't have faith, they do have faith. They believe in a whole bunch of things. They don't say it that way, but they believe that the way that they see the universe and the way the universe is put together, that's an act of faith. They believe that that the way that they uh, deal with science and how science has revealed things to them and that in the next 15 years, the things that they believe about science aren't going to be debunked, 
that's an act of faith. And every, they make a million steps of an act of faith. They have faith that their credit card is going to work. They have faith that the house that they're building is going to be worth more in 10 years than it is right now. And so they have all these steps of faith that they have when they step into it. For us, there's just one. There is a God. He has revealed himself to us through Jesus and the scriptures. That's our one step of faith. And it's a simple and easy step of faith. Totally different. But what we need to do is we need to define what faith is. We're all practicing faith right now by sitting in our chairs. We're practicing faith this morning. And so I want to take us to Hebrews 11, uh, verse 1. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so you have both of these things going on this morning. You have the, the um, car that you drove here and then the chair that you're sitting on as an act of faith that you sat in these two things, you did both these things as an act of faith. And what, the, what we just reading, read in, in Hebrews is that as an act of faith, we're, we have this hope that comes with it. And so we've demonstrated that we have this faith and we have this assurance of it right in front of us. And we'll, so what's the assurance of? Hope. That's our assurance. You hoped your brakes would work. You hoped that your chair would hold you. You had the assurance of it. You sat down. You drove your car. So the second part of the definition of hope is that it's not only the assurance of things hoped for, but it's the conviction of things not seen. So if we go back to these two illustrations, I don't think that, raise your hand if you did this this morning, before you got in your car and drove it out of the driveway, you crawled underneath your car and you expect, inspected the brake lines to make sure that they were all put together, that they were hooked up to the brakes, you lifted the hood and made sure that you had brake fluid under your car. Did, you, did anybody do that this morning? See, nobody did that because you, you have the conviction of something that's going to work that is unseen. You didn't look it out. Matter of fact, nobody came in this morning and nobody kind of crawled under their chair and looked at it to make sure all the bolts were put. Nobody flipped it upside down and inspected to make sure that the cushion seat was put on there correctly and that the little metal pieces of the, the, the chair were welded and bent right so that it would hold you up. Nobody did that because we have this hope that it's an unseen expectation that it's going to do what it said it was going to do, what it was designed to do. And so this morning we have that going on for us because faith is the assurance of things hoped for and it is the deep conviction in what we cannot see. That is the biblical definition. And so with that in place, let me just show you a couple other things about faith. The Bible clearly teaches us that Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without assurance of things hoped for and without the conviction of things unseen, you and I cannot please God. We do not have the ability to please God. So faith is monumentally important for us to live in, walk in, rest in, and exercise. So let's look at where faith comes from and how it grows and how we grow in our faith. Because... What I'm about to show you is at some levels a little bit scary. Okay, so Ephesians 2.8. Probably a lot of you already know this verse. And it's for by grace. Now, here's again a place where we can, as Christianese language, we can get kind of messed up. 
If you're not careful, you'll miss out on what grace is. Grace is just unmerited favor from God. Unmerited favor. That's what grace is. And it's a free gift, so let's keep reading. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, did you hear what the text just said right there? It, Paul just said that you and I, we are saved. We are made righteous before God by grace of God alone through faith in that grace and that that faith to believe is in the grace that has been given to us. It's nothing of our own doing. So the whole thing hinges only solely upon God. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with how good you think you are. It has nothing to do with the, the works of righteousness that you do. It has nothing to do with how you treat your neighbor. It has nothing to do with the way that you love and care for the land that God's given to you. All it is is it's all dependent upon God. We can't muster it up. It's not our choice to have it, but rather even the faith to believe the grace of God is given to us by God so that no one can boast. You can't turn around and say, hey, I got the grace of God because I'm such a great guy. God's going, you're not that great. Matter of fact, if you remember, um, for those of you that have been with us through the whole study on Habakkuk, if you remember that very first week, I said something that probably kicked you right in the shins. And I said this, because this is what the Bible teaches us. You're not awesome. You're not awesome. I mean, I know you've been told since you were a little kid, oh, you're so awesome. You're so cool. You're so awesome. No, God's awesome. You're just a human being that's kind of screwed up and you need a lot of help. And that's why we have Jesus. And so the whole thing that we have for us is it's that grace has been given to us by God so we have nothing to boast about except in Him. Now, you might be here and struggling a little bit. You might say, well, you know what? I kind of have a bit of a weak faith and I'm a bit discouraged by what you're telling me this morning. Well, I want you to take heart. I really want you to be encouraged because... Here's where we all sit. All of us are in the same boat together. We are absolutely in a position of desperation. We are desperate for God to come and continually provide for us what we can't provide for ourselves. And once we get a taste of what God has for us, guess what we ask for? We want more. That's what we want. We're not satisfied with the little bit we just got yesterday. We want more of it for today. We want more of it for tomorrow. We want more of it for next week. We want that grace to grow in our lives. And, and it's one of those things that we cannot muster up on our own. Now, you see this laid out in the Bible a lot of times. And probably one of my favorite stories surrounding this muster of faith where we just can't get it done comes from uh, Mark chapter 9. Now let me tell you what happens in Mark chapter 9. So Jesus goes up on the mountain. He takes the big three with him. You know who the big three are? Pete, Jimmy, and John. You were wondering where Jimmy John's came from, weren't you? Right there. Pete, Jimmy, and John, they're with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and God is talking with Jesus, and these three cats, they're listening to this conversation, and their minds are exploding because it's the Father and the Son having this intimate conversation. And then on, on top of all of that, then Moses and Elijah show up, and they're like, whoa, how we can't, life can't get in. Let's stay up here forever. 
And Jesus is going, no, we don't live on the mountaintops. We don't get to stay up here. Matter of fact, it's time to go. We have to go back down into the valley. Do you know what those three cats and Jesus ran into when they got off the mountaintop down into the valley? A demonic boy. There's, there's this demon-possessed boy and, and the rest of the disciples, the other nine, and the Pharisees are having an argument because what has been trying to happen is they've been trying to cast the demon out of this boy and they're unable to do it. They can't get it done. And what happens in this whole thing is the dad is beside himself because when, when the, I don't know if the Pharisees were involved with it or not, but, but as they're trying to help this boy find freedom from the demonic powers that have a grip on his life and, and, and they're trying to cast him out, all that happens is the demons get angry and they take this poor boy and they throw him into a convulsion so he looks like he's having an epileptic fit on the ground and then he gets up and the demons throw him into a fire and they grab him and pull him out of the fire and they make sure he's okay and then the demons take him and throw him into the lake and they try to destroy him by drowning him and this is going on and you can just imagine what's going on through that dad's head as this is all going on before him. He's watching this thing and he's just beside himself and then Jesus comes off the mountain. He comes off the pinnacle. He comes off the high moment where he's just spent time with his father and his two buddies, Moses and Elijah. And, and he's with his disciples, the three that he loved, with Peter and Jimmy and John. And they're up there and they come down and this is what they run into. They run into the, the demonic activity of this world. Little side note. You don't get to live on the mountaintop experience with Jesus. Far too many people, that's where they want to be. They want that euphoric feeling. They want to have that thing well up inside of them where they just feel like they're in the presence of Jesus all the time. And Jesus is going, that's not where I have you to live. I'm giving you a taste of what heaven's going to be like. And that's just a very small taste of it. And you will get that on full-fledged someday. But right now, go back down in the valley because I've got some demon activity waiting for you down there. And we're like, ah. So Jesus shows up, and he asks, what's going on? And so the disciples reveal to him, they say like, we've been trying to cast this demon out of this boy, but we can't get it done. And so the, the dad comes to Jesus and says, he says, since my son was young, he's gritted his teeth, he's had these convulsions, he's gone, and, and, and the demons have tried to kill him multiple occasions. Not just now, but throwing him into a fire and throwing him uh, into the water, trying to destroy him. We've always been able to drag him out and rescue him. And here are the words of a father who, who is absolutely at his wit's end. He says to Jesus, can you help me? Because these guys over here, they're not getting it done. But can you help me with the issues of my life that are going on right now? And here's what Jesus says. He says a quick line about believing this dad he says if you believe all things are possible at that moment the father falls to the ground and he sobs and he looks up with Jesus with tear stained face coming through the dirt and he looks at Jesus he says I believe help me in my unbelief that's where we all are do you get that do you get that? That's exactly where we are because stuff comes along to us and we look at it and, and Jesus goes, do you believe? We go, I believe. 
I believe this, and I believe this, and I believe this, but over here, I'm having a little bit of unbelief. I'm having some doubts about this, and I'm really trying to get my head around this, and I'm really wondering, Jesus, can you, can you really help me with that stuff? There's a part of me that does believe, but then there's a part of me that has doubt, that holds me back, and, and, that's, and what I think is this. Can God really do that? Is God really good? Can God really accomplish these things? And so in those moments, our prayers are, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Let me tell you how I deal with it, because I'm just like you guys. I have those moments in my life when I'm going like, oh, man, I believe, God, that you can do this. I believe, God, that you've chosen the right person to do this. I believe in all the things that are before you, before me, God. And then I come to that part where I'm like, oh. And then I, I have to fight those moments in my life. And this is how I fight. I ask the Lord to help my unbelief, to strengthen my faith, to continue to stir up my faith in me, to believe that he's able and he's willing. And for those of you who'd say, well, Pastor Ken, God is sovereign, is he not? And doesn't he already know? And I would say, yeah, he absolutely does. But what I've been commanded to do by the word is to believe and to obey without doubt. That's where Jesus is calling me to live. He calls me to live there. He doesn't call me to live in any other place. And so God's will is going to be God's will. He's going to do whatever he pleases, but he commands me on my life. He commands me to be obedient to what he has called me to be obedient to and to trust him that he is able and willing to do so much more. I don't know if you know these, these three guys out of the Old Testament, the book of Daniel called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were given this thing. They were told this enormous idol was built before them. And they said, you have got to ball, fall down and worship this idol. And they go, huh, no, that's not God. God. You can't see God. You can't go up and touch God like that. You can't knock on it and make a hollow sound. That's not God. So we're not going to bow down to that. Nope, not going to do it. And they said, if you don't bow down to that, we're going to throw you into this fiery furnace over here. And we're going to burn you up. We're going to absolutely eliminate anything that ever belonged to you. Even your bones are going to be burned to nothing. And they said, well, you can threaten us all you want, but we're not going to do it. And guess what? We believe our God will deliver us. We believe that. And you know what they said after that? And if he doesn't deliver us, we're still okay with it. We believe, but if he, doesn't, if he doesn't do like we think he should do, we're okay with that because guess what? We would rather burn up and be in the presence of God than to bow down to that stupid idol. And so God, as you know, he stepped in and he rescued him. He did exactly what, what he said he was going to do. He can save and he will save. And if he doesn't, in that instance, it's all right because we need the gift of faith and we need to ask Jesus for it. So faith is a gift of grace. And let me show you something that will help you understand why I'm always on you about being in the word of God and getting under the word of God and living by faith under the word of God. Let me take you to Romans 10 because this is so highly important for us as a body of Christ, for the family of Wind River Community Church. This is one of those things I keep pushing on you. I've done it for years. And so I want you to hear it again one more time. Well, probably not the last time either. So, you know, that's just the way it's going to be. 
Here's, here's what it says. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So here's the deal on that. It's the gift. This is the faith that we're talking about. Faith is a gift of grace. It's the gift of, it, that's dispensed in our hearing of the word. Why do you think it's important to come to church on Sunday morning? To stroke my ego? Forget it. I learned a long time ago when you lose your hair, you got nothing left. I mean, you know, you, you lose your hair, you put on an extra, you know, 5 or 35 pounds. Who knows? Who's counting? My kids love me. My wife still loves me. I don't have to prove anything to anybody. And so the reason why you should be in church isn't, isn't here because of me. It's because of what we're looking at, the Word of God. Because the Word of God is the thing that, that grows your faith as you sit under the Word of God, you hear the Word of God coming into your life, then you have faith, and your faith starts to grow. It's, it's interesting when you look at what um, Paul does whenever he writes a letter to the churches. It's the most amazing thing. When he writes a letter to the churches, who's he writing to? He's writing to church people. He's writing to those who believe. He's writing to those who are already convinced that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But what does he write to them every time he writes? He writes to them and talks to them about the gospel of Jesus. Do you get that? It's the gospel of Jesus that he, he preaches every time to the church people. He's saying, you need to know more about Jesus. You need to understand the gospel of Jesus. You, know how, you need to know how the um, gospel is brought into your life. He's constantly drawing their attention to the fact that their righteousness is not their own righteousness. It's imputed or credited to them by Christ. So you're really struggling with guilt. And if you're really struggling with, with shame and you can't get past yourself enough to love and worship Jesus, and what you do is you say, the gospel is what it's all about. It's not how good you are or if you are good enough. The gospel, according to Romans, is that we could not be obedient to the law. Weak as we are in our flesh. God did this thing by sending his son in the likeness of a human being in the flesh to walk among us and that he fulfilled the righteous requirements of God's law. And he sent him, Jesus, to the cross so that Jesus would die on that cross. And when Jesus absorbed all of God's wrath on the cross, he imputed to us his righteousness. So what Jesus got was our death and what we got was Jesus' life. So what we see in Jesus is that he lived a perfect, spotless life and then he imputed, gave that to us. So do you know who lived perfectly? You did, through Christ. Do you know that on judgment day, this is how it's going to happen. You're going to stand in front of God, the righteous and just judge, 
and he is going to look at you. And you know what he's going to see? He's going to see spotlessness. He's going to see that you are blameless. He's going to see that you are above reproach. That's you. That's who you are in Christ. You are above all. Now think about that. That's unbelievable. I want you to think about all of that. Because when, you, when we think about what Paul does, he reminds the church that because people have a tendency, they go one of two ways. They have a tendency to stumble a bit and then be a bit slow in their sanctification. And so what they do is they get down on themselves. When, when they stumble and they make a mess of things, they pick themselves up, and, and their tendency is to say, I will fix this. I will do better next time. I will not go down that path again. The other guy that you have is, is what I would probably call the super disciplined guy. He's the guy that gets up at 5 o'clock in the morning and he spends 45 minutes reading and meditating upon God's word. And then he spends another 45 minutes, excuse me, praying for people, praying for, like Fred said this morning, that person who doesn't know Christ, praying for their, their family and their friends and their relatives, praying for their pastor. And then they pray some more for their pastor. And then they go and they start to get up and then they go back to their knees and they pray more for their pastor. Do you get it yet? <laughs> And this guy, he's dominating the checklist. I mean, he's checking things off, and he's pretty cool, and he's pretty got it going all together. And, and you know what? He no longer really knows God. He really no longer talks with God. He is simply uses God to make much of himself. He's making himself popular. He's making himself great. He's making his name known. And that's the guy that is conceited and puffed up. And what Paul wants the, the early church to constantly remember is your righteousness is Christ's righteousness imputed to you. He also wants to remind them of the centrality of the cross, that they are owing to God in regards of God's wrath because God's wrath was absorbed by Jesus' death. So you get Jesus' life, Jesus takes your death, and which is what Paul, why Paul says this in Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in the flesh. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, get this, get this, and delivered himself up to me. It ain't about you. Paul's saying, you know what? I'm dead. That's all I can say. In all of his shortcomings, in all of his failure, every time he sold out and every time that he failed to do what God asked him to do, every time he was disobedient, every time he sinned, all of that died on the cross with Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your sins are already all dealt with? Every sin that you've ever committed in the past, every sin you'll commit today in the present, and every sin you will commit in the future has already been nailed to the cross with Jesus. Jesus took the death for all those sins. And so every time you commit that sin, it's already been paid for. It's already been bought. It's already been dealt with. So don't let the guilt 
Don't let the shame, don't let the enemy whisper lies in your ear that you are worthless because you are bought and prayed for with the blood of Jesus Christ. So the reason that we need to sit under the gospel over and over again is because by hearing it, faith grows. And as the gift of faith grows, you become more and more assured of the hope for which you are developing with deeper convictions of what you cannot see. Some of you right now are just going like, I just feel dry as an autumn leaf. I just feel like I have not connected with God in such a long time. I just, I just feel like God's probably giving up on me because I don't feel him. I'm just not connected. Well, let me be really personal with you. I've been, for the last month, in that place. My life has been dry. I go to the Word and I open it up and I go, hmm, I'm sure God has something for me here. I'm going to read one verse today. Jesus wept. Close it up, Walker. Guess what? Here's, here's what I know. And it doesn't, it's not a license for me to stay in the place that I'm at. But here's what I know. Regardless of how I approach Jesus, he still loves me. What separates me from the love of God? Nothing. Not, not my, my dryness in the word, not my uh, failure at my prayer life. Nothing will separate me from the love of God. That doesn't mean that's where Jesus wants me to be. Jesus loves me just the way that I am, but he's not willing to leave me where I'm at. He's going like, come along, boy. I got to teach you a thing or two. And I'm going, I don't want to go. He goes, well, listen, you can either come now willingly or you can come later kicking and screaming. It's your choice. You get a choice in this. I'm just telling you, what do you want to do? And I've said, all right, I'll go now. I'm coming, but I'm reluctant. He goes, I don't care if you're reluctant as long as you're coming along. And, and I'm just being honest with you. So if you feel that way today, I, I want you to not feel like you're alone. Because here's what the truth is. That faith comes by hearing, and faith is a gift given to us as we hear by the grace of God to mature us in such a way that our lives please God. How often are you putting yourselves under the truths of the gospel, the promises of God? Are you studying the scripture? Are you in a biblical community? Are you in a place that is stirring these things up and turning these things up inside of you? I met with a couple of, of uh, our young leaders in the church this week, and I shared my struggle with them. And I said, do two things. Pray for me, and then hold me accountable to it. And they do. I love it. One of the guys came up to me and goes, hey, where are you at right now? And I go, well, I'm, I'm moving in the right direction. I'm moving in the right direction. He says, okay, I'm keeping an eye on you. And I go, okay, knock it off. Here's the other thing that, that, that young Paul said in Romans. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, also to the Greek. 
For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. When you exercise faith, you put yourself under the good teaching, under the word of God. That's the important thing for us to remember. Is that, and, and, and you're going to hear a lot more about being under the word of God coming up this fall with our small groups. And so this is you. I know it's way down here underneath this. But that's you right there. And what Jesus wants, what God wants, what he's calling for us to do is for us to now be under the word. We're under it. Because when we're under it, that's where we start to hear it. That's where we start to believe it. That's where it starts to impress upon our life who we should be, how God wants us to grow. And when you become strong in your faith, then the activities of the spiritual gifts that you have been given are now activated and you're living out the spiritual gifts that God's given to you. And when you live out the spiritual gifts that God has given to you, now you make an imprint and a footprint in the community of Lander upon your friends who don't know Jesus. You can live your life in front of them and kind of live a really good life. But at some point, you actually have to open your mouth and say something about Jesus. And that's why living under the word of God is so important because that's where you go to. So let's go back to Habakkuk. I'm not going to pull up the verse. But it's which one of these two people are you? You've got the, the two people that have been painted in a picture. You've got the puffed up conceited one who has no need for God. You're it. Your faith is in you. You can get it done. You can accomplish it and you can make it happen. And, and I always just want to ask the question to people who are, who are living a life like that. How's it working for you? It's a rhetorical question to them because I already know the answer. They would say, oh, it's working just fine, but they're lying through their teeth because their life is a mess. Or here's the other side. Do you live by faith? Is your faith in God, in the God who is there, the God who will always be victorious, and the God who sees all things? Are you putting your hope in your limitedness or in the reality that he is not only unlimited, but he is loving? Where are you confident? Where's your confidence? Where's your hope? Now, don't make this more complex than it is. Just think about it. Where is your confidence? I want you to think about the things that you do in life and where do you go first? In the confidence of yourself, the things you know you can accomplish, the things that you know that you can do, the way that you live your life, the way that you've built your life, is that where you go? Or is your first place to go and say, God, I need help. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. We're going to continue on in Habakkuk, and, and we're going to see some stuff there where God shows up and does what he does. And it really is an eye-opener for Habakkuk. But the question still remains, do you have faith? Are you exercising faith? If the answer is no, then you've kind of inoculated yourself to the real need of Jesus. You've put your confidence in a place that cannot sustain it and will eventually crumble around you. Here's, here's my thought for you, my heart for you, is that you would hear enough of what God says and that God might, in his grace, grant you faith to believe. I, I can't assume 
stuff about everybody here because I don't know everybody here. And maybe you have faith in faith. Maybe you have faith in yourself in being able to read God's word. Maybe you've never even really thought that it was important to have faith in Jesus Christ because it's only through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And, and you're going like, that's the truth. That's the reality. That's where righteousness stems from. And maybe you've never believed in that. It, it would not be right of me to leave this message alone without at least extending to you the invitation for you to step up and to ask for faith from Jesus. And so when we go in, because we're going to start singing some songs, and we're going to start worshiping here real quick, and so what's going to happen is Brother Fred is going to be in the back in the, in the coffee bar area. That's where our prayer time is. If you want prayer, if you want prayer because you say, I believe, but I need help in my unbelief, Fred and others will be back there to pray for you. If this is your first time of thinking, I really don't know that I have faith in Christ, and I need to make that a reality today, you go back and someone will be back there to help you pray that prayer because that's highly important, and that's where we're going to go. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these men and these women. And my hope would be that as we close and we sing these songs to you where we lift up our hearts, that you would come and meet us where we don't have faith. We would be even maybe a little bit nervous that we would take the time to come and ask for prayer. And maybe for the first time. And I hope you will reveal to us that we put all of our confidence in you and that that's the reason for some of our anxiety and bitterness is because we haven't and maybe that's the reason for our frustration in life that we continue to let ourselves down and then hate ourselves because we can't measure up we just want to be good so i pray this morning that everyone today would die to themselves and be rooted in faith solely deeply in you we thank you for your word. We thank you how you teach us. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you that you've given us the provision for it. We thank you for your righteousness, Jesus. We thank you that we are righteous because of you. Thank you for, for taking our sin and giving us your righteousness. We pray all these things in your great name, Jesus. Amen.